Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. And I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Luke, chapter 23. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. Those were all my favorites. I loved it when death was arrested. Fairly new song, and then In Christ Alone is relatively new. It's probably 20 years old. Uh, and then Because He Lives. I remember growing up singing that song. In fact, I can tell you the page number, sitting there thinking back to a teenage years, it was hymn 448 in the hymnal I grew up singing. Does that sound familiar to anybody else? You're going to go back and check. These, these are old. There's been new ones since then. When I was in seminary, they would poll the students every year, what's your favorite song? Always top three was Because He Lives. Who wrote Because He Lives? Who can tell me? Who? Bill and Gloria Gaither. Who said that? Raise your hand. Lois, I knew you would know. Casey, you're raising your hand. What are you raising your hand for? You knew it? You said it too. You know, normally I have no trouble hearing Casey. What? You're going to have to learn to project. The message is on being forgiven. I don't know what you think about when you think about Easter. I don't know what you think about when you think about the cross. For too many, the cross has just become a piece of jewelry. It's become kind of a sterile, smooth emblem. There's a cross here on this table. There's a cross behind me on the wall. In the day that Jesus was crucified, the cross was not a piece of jewelry. And it's neat to have one around your neck if that is, in fact, a reminder of the cross. But one of the things I think about when I think about the cross is the word forgiven. And so this morning before you leave, I hope you hear that enough that you'll leave. The one thing planted on your mind this morning is that Jesus has the last word on forgiveness. Regardless of what you were thinking when you walked in here, regardless of how you're weighted down with whatever, it's good news to be reminded that we're forgiven. Let me read this passage, Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 43. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I want us to see, first of all, the process or the place of forgiveness. I want us to be just reminded of the characters in play at the crucifixion of Christ. The first is the criminal. 
In fact, can I be honest with you? I've been preaching a long time. been to seminary, have a doctorate degree. I saw a verse this year that leapt off the page I never thought about. I had this picture of Jesus going to the cross, and he was by himself until he got there, and I thought the two thieves were with him. The Bible says that right before that in verse 20 or 32, it said, and the two criminals were, were following, walking alongside of Jesus as he's led to this place called the place of the skull. If you ever visit the Holy Land, there's two places that possibly could be the place of the crucifixion and the place of the burial. And my first year over there, one place is called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's built up. It's very ornate. It doesn't look right. But it may be where the crucifixion took place. The tomb is, you've got to stand in line for about two hours to get into it. And you're probably going to get hit in the leg with a nun, by a nun that's going to be walking in there to put the candles out and put them back on. They call that ministering to the candles. And I'm standing there buying my own business. She comes through swatting me on the leg. She, I just get out of the way. There's another place called the garden tomb. And right beside the garden tomb is this hill. In fact, here's a picture of it. If you were alive 2,000 years ago, it probably looks even more like a skull because the folks who went with me this year, the uh, bridge of the nose has collapsed in the last year. One of the eye sockets is more um, collapsed because right below that is a bus station. You think, why didn't they rope that off? Well, it's because this wasn't discovered until like 100 or so years ago by General Gordon. Y'all familiar with this story? He's sitting on the patio of Horatio Spafford. Who knows who Horatio Spafford is? Somebody. Horatio Spafford, he wrote, It is well with my soul. Great story. He ends up retiring in Jerusalem, in fact, buried in Jerusalem. And so if you go to the garden tomb now, you, you can't get to that. You have to look across literally a bus station. But that is not a hill, hill far away. You know, the songs we sing, the picture we get sometimes is on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. It wasn't a hill far away. It was a hill right beside the road. This would have been where people coming and going. And keep in mind, what time of year was this? It was Passover. Millions of people are coming and in and out of the city. And so they crucified Jesus and the criminals with him right beside a public road. Why would they do that? Well, for one thing, they had to do it outside the gate. But the other thing is they wanted it to be a testimony. They wanted it to be a reminder and a warning, if you will, to everybody who saw that to say, don't end up in their shape. I'm sure parents, as they brought their kids in, the kids said, what did they do? Well, they've broken the law, and so they're giving their life. And so you'll, you'll kind of catch a sense of this. I want you to remember this as we, as we work through it. But one of the groups of people, there's going to be five this morning that I want to point out to you. One is the criminals. While Jesus is dying, there's one on the left, one on the right. We'll talk about them a little bit more. But there's also the people who are looking on. We don't get a big description of them here. The other gospel writers talk a little bit more about what they're doing. But they're, they're walking in and out of Jerusalem, in and out of the gate to get to the temple district. This is the Passover. And they would stop and hurl abuse at Jesus themselves. Now, this just says they're looking on, but other, other gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, tell us that they were hurling abuse themselves at Jesus. You've, you've saved others, save yourself. And so the passerbyers, it's, it's as if 
they're rubberneckers going down the road. You ever notice that? There can be an accident over here. Why does everybody have to slow down to look? It's because we're drawn to stuff like that. We're drawn to train wrecks, unfortunately. And so the passerbyers, crowd gathers. This was a public execution. This wasn't done off in the distance where you didn't see it and didn't smell it and didn't hear it. You were right there within speaking distance of the person being put to death. And so the passerbyers, the people around the cross were also there. And the rulers. Who are the rulers? These would be the members of the Sanhedrin. Those men, Pharisees and Sadducees, who had decided, plotted to put Jesus to death, made a deal with Judas to betray Jesus. They're the ones that went to the Roman authorities and talked them into not only arresting Jesus, but putting him to death, even though the Roman authorities said, I find no guilt in him. And notice what they're doing. They're saying he saved others, let him save himself. They're not even speaking to Jesus. They're just talking to their fellow man around them. They're adding insult to the injury. Jesus is dying on the cross with no sin of his own, but the sin of the rest of the world weighing on him and the the religious rulers are taunting by sneering and talking back and forth. He saved others, let him save himself. If this is the Christ, his chosen, the chosen one of God. Fourth group of people are the soldiers. It says they a lot, but it says they led him to Calvary. There they crucified him and the criminals with them, so they crucified them. They're also at the foot of the cross gambling over his clothes. One of the last things they would do to, again, add uh, insult to what's going on on the cross is they would strip the individual, and they're gambling over his shoes and his tunic and his clothes. And Jesus has got to be watching that. They're also hurling abuse. Why don't you prove you are the Christ? Come down off the cross. Save yourself. Does that sound familiar? Every time I read that, I think about the temptation account back in Matthew chapter 4. That's exactly what Satan said. If you are Christ, prove it. So I think these people fueled by the devil himself are saying, why don't you prove that you really are the Christ? Why don't you come down off the cross and prove it? Hey, and then we'll believe you? No. There had been enough proof of who Jesus was. The soldiers are even offering vinegar, literally, to drink. But there's a fifth person, and that is Jesus himself. And in the midst of all this going on, in the midst of the sneering, in the midst of the mocking, in the midst of the gambling over his clothes, in the midst of the fact he had been beaten nearly to death, made to carry his own cross, had to press Simon in to help him carry the cross. As he's breathing his last breath, he's within hours of death. What does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. Forgive them. I never once hear Jesus from the cross talk about himself until he's about to breathe his last breath and he cries out, Oh, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm thirsty. Into your hands I commit my spirit. But Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Who is them? Well, certainly the soldiers who put him on the cross. Certainly the Roman government who has beaten him and now nailed him to a 
cross. But even the religious people who were murmuring, sneering in between themselves, even them, Jesus says, forgive them. But folks, we know why Jesus went to the cross, so he's also saying, Father, forgive them. That's why Jesus died on the cross. He died on the cross to glorify God, to satisfy a holy and righteous God who could not wink at sin. And so it cost Jesus his life. But he said, Father, forgive them. What does the word forgive mean? Literally, in the original language, it means send it away. Jesus is saying, Father, don't hold this against them. Don't remember it anymore. Send it as far as the east is from the west. Send it forth. Send it away. Jesus is asking God to do something only God can do. You and I have a hard time forgiving people, don't we? Because we have a hard time forgetting. We can't send it away. It stays constantly in our mind. But that's what Jesus is saying. And if you don't remember anything else of the day, when we walk out of this place today, I pray the thing that resonates in our mind is, I am forgiven. As a child of God, I'm forgiven. Let me share a couple of examples of forgiveness with you. One is the woman called in adultery, John chapter 8. Just going to share a couple. John chapter 8. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's been teaching in the temple precincts. He's gone home for the night. He's now come back. Verse 1 of chapter 8. But when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, this is early in his ministry. Early in the morning he came again to the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery having set her in the center of the court. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that he might, they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Do you know what he wrote on the ground? I have no idea. I've heard preachers preach sermons, and they've told me what he wrote on the ground. We don't know. He could have been writing down their sins. He may have been writing the Ten Commandments. He may have just been doodling to draw attention, because the attention has totally been on this woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus takes the attention away from her, stoops, and writes on the ground. And the religious leaders are just waiting. No matter what he says, we got him. Because if he says, yeah, stone her, then they would have a reason to accuse him. Who are you to pronounce judgment on this woman? If he says, don't stone her, they say, who are you to disavow the Old Testament? And so all attention is on him. But have you ever stopped and asked the question, if this woman was caught in the very act of adultery, where's the man? No mention is made of the man. Obviously, there was another party involved. Was it a setup? Was it a sting operation? Did they say, hey, you go. And put yourself in a compromising position so that we can bring this woman. And where do they bring her? Into the temple. And they challenge Jesus. What do you say we should do about such a woman? She was caught in the very act. And she doesn't deny it. She's guilty. And the law says we're supposed to take her out of the gates of the city and cast her over a hill and just hurl rocks at her till she's dead. If you have the mental picture that they were just going to throw rocks at her, you know, circle around her and throw rocks, that was kind of my original picture. The problem is if you're standing on the other side, you're going to get hit too. 
But typically what they would do is throw them over a hill, and if that didn't kill them, then they just dropped rocks on them until they were dead. And that's what they're doing. And I think as Jesus stoops to ride on the ground, there's people already looking for rocks. And what does Jesus say? But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older one. And he was left alone, and the woman there where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. So Jesus says, yeah, go ahead. Let the one who without sin cast the first stone. The Bible says as the older one started doing the math on that, realized, I can't throw a stone. Why? Because I'm a sinner. And so they began to leave. And it's down to where now all that's left is Jesus and the woman. And he says, did no one condemn you? She says, no one. Well, is there anybody based on what Jesus said that could have condemned her? Yes, Jesus could have. Jesus said, let the one without sin cast the first stone. Who had no sin? Jesus. Jesus would have been well within his right based on that to throw the first stone. And yet he says, I don't condemn you either. You see, the crowd that day wanted her to pay for her sin. Jesus knew one day I will have to pay for that sin. Sin doesn't go unnoticed by God. It doesn't get winked at by God. It's not swept under the carpet. There has to be a penalty and a payment for sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so while Jesus is freeing this woman from the death penalty, and he says to her, go and sin no more, Jesus knew one day I'll die because of this person's sin. And because of our sin. The other example of, of forgiveness is back in our focus passage. And that is the criminal on the cross. I'm amazed that these two men are dying beside Jesus. One on the right, the other on the left. And one of them is hurling abuse at Jesus himself and saying, Hey, if you really are the Son of God, prove it. Come down off the cross and, and by the way, save me in the process. And the other guy looks at him and says, why don't you hush? <laughs> Do you not even fear God? We are being rightly and justly put to death for our crime. Luke just describes him as a criminal. Other gospel accounts describe these two as robbers. That's what they were guilty of. They were thieves. And they recognized we're dying rightly here. But the guy on the other side looks across Jesus and says, don't you fear God? And one of the best pictures of forgiveness you'll ever see is this guy looking at Jesus and saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly, which means listen up, what I'm about to say is really important. Today you will be with me in paradise. That's the simple gospel message. What has this guy done? He's acknowledged that he's a sinner. I'm dying because I deserve to die. But this man has done no wrong. He recognized in Christ, here was a perfect, spotless, human God. Because he says, don't you even fear God. He recognized this was God, and he could do something about his condition. And so he says, remember me. 
And that day he breathed his last breath, and when he opened his eyes, he's in the presence of God in a place called paradise. Beautiful picture of forgiveness. But then there's got to be a response to forgiveness. How do you respond to the offer of forgiveness? Jesus said, Father, forgive them. But folks, unpack all that is happening at the cross. Jesus is paying the penalty for your sin and my sin. And I've got to receive that. I've got to receive the forgiveness. It's not a gift if I don't receive it. And so this year at Easter, I'm asking the question, have you ever trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you ever received His forgiveness? So the first is, you've got to receive the offer. You've got to receive forgiveness. How do you know that you've received forgiveness? Well, you're not running from Him anymore. You're running to Him. You don't view God as a God who's got a big stick just waiting to whack you with it, but you recognize there's a God who loves me, even me, the way I am, and I don't have to run from Him. That's what guilt does, and that's kind of the game Satan plays with us. Satan convinces us to sin because he tells us we'll be a better person if we do. We're more happy. This is going to make you more fulfilled. This is what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. But as soon as you sin, he says, well, you better run. God's got a big stick. He's about to hit you with it. And so instead of running to God, we run from God. You ever had kids? <laughs> a lot of you have children. You ever notice what they do when they know they've done something wrong? What, what's their natural tendency? To go hide. You know, when you got four kids like we did, they could go hide hoping we'd forget about it or maybe blame somebody else. I'll speak about our youngest since he isn't here. We lived in a house in Gastonia where he could do circles through the living room, dining room, kitchen, den, and he just loved running circles. I don't know. I didn't ever stop him. I didn't join him either. But he ran by one time and broke a lamp. And I pulled him over to the side and I said, I found out the lamp was broken. I kind of knew who broke it. I didn't see him do it, but by process of illumination, I knew it wasn't me and Eva. So I said, Gabe, who broke this lamp? He said, Ashley. I said, Gabe, Ashley's not here, Brittany. He would have eventually gotten down to Robbie. I don't think he blamed Robbie. But that's our natural tendency. Blame somebody else, hide, pretend, maybe it'll go away. And so you know you're forgiven when you run to God and just acknowledge, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I need to be forgiven. I don't need this weight of sin hanging over me when I face God someday. I want to have a fresh start that lasts forever. And I'm forgiven. Run to Him, not from Him. And quit pretending. We're good at pretending, aren't we? Especially in spiritual, religious circles. How are you doing? Somebody asked you, how many of you, somebody asked you when you walked in the door, how are you doing? What would you say? Oh, fine. They used to crack me up in our car trying to get to church sometimes with four kids. Somebody had screamed, somebody had cried, and sometimes it was me doing both. Before you pull into the parking lot, and we didn't live far from the church, we've all been screaming at each other, wailing and gnashing of teeth, you get out of the car door and somebody says, how you doing? Fine. Oh, everything's hunky-dory. Can't, can't wait to be here. Quit pretending. 
Listen, when you're a criminal on the cross dying, there's no more time for pretending. Well, you probably won't find yourself in that place. But listen, if you're still running from God and you're still trying to put on the church look, that is incredibly frustrating. It is incredibly empty. You can pretend to be like everybody else, but until you know Jesus, you'll never be like him. Accept his unconditional love. But forgiven people also forgive. So not only do we receive forgiveness, we offer forgiveness. The parable that Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 18, if you want to turn there, you can. I won't read the passage. I'll just summarize it. Jesus had been teaching about the end of times, and Peter comes up with this idea of forgiveness. If I will read verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter's just trying to clarify. Can I cold cock him on the eighth time? You know, kind of the Jewish law was forgive up to seven times. And what does Jesus say? I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So was Peter doing the math thinking, I think that's 490? No, Jesus wasn't trying to give him a specific number. Jesus was saying, you forgive and you forgive and you forgive. Because you've been forgiven, forgive. So then he tells a parable. He tells a parable about a king and a, and a poor servant that owed him a lot of money. In fact, if you do the math on the amount of money that he owed him, it was worth 150 years of a person's salary. No, excuse me, 150,000 years. 150,000 years of a person's salary, this guy owed the king. Now, Jesus is obviously using exaggeration because how in the world could somebody be that much in debt? I mean, he's not like the United States or something. 150,000 years, I think it was 10,000 talents, which is equal to 15 years of labor. And the man comes and he, he's, he's going to be put in prison until he can pay his debt. And he falls on the floor and asks mercy from the king. And the king has mercy and forgives him his debt. Then he walks right out the door and sees somebody that owes him about four months wages. Some denarii. Day's wage. Adds up to between three to four months. You see the picture, Jesus? 150,000 years worth of labor and four months. And this guy sees the guy that owes him something. And goes up, puts a stranglehold on him. Pay me, pay me. And the guy begs him for mercy and he won't give him mercy. The king hears about it and takes him and throws him into jail and says, you'll be tortured and imprisoned until you pay back every cent you owe. Well, how do you pay back 150,000 years worth of labor? You, you can't. But that's the picture that Jesus is giving in the parable. He's saying, Peter, listen, understand something. This isn't about forgiving seven times. This is about the fact You've been forgiven this much, so you need to forgive. There's nobody that you'll ever forgive that's done more to you than we've done against God. And if you're struggling with forgiveness, I asked a question one time of somebody. I said, how do you know you've forgiven somebody? Because we're not like God. God can cast it as far as the east is from the west. He sends it forth, but we still struggle remembering. And the person said, when you can treat them like it never happened, you know you've forgiven. And so you need to pray that God would bring you to that point in your life where because you're forgiven, you forgive 
others. Forgiven people forgive. I've got something I want to hand you on the way out the door. It's a little token that can go in your pocket. I told you I wanted you to remember this message for a long time. And it's simply a little cross with a nail on it that says forgiven. Now, I thought the print was going to be a little bit bigger than it is. Trust me, it says forgiven. Tonight, when you get home, get your magnifying glass out. It says forgive. If you'd like one of these, there's going to be some at the double glass doors. There's going to be some at the back door there. And I just encourage you to take one. Don't take a handful because we want everybody to get one. But why do I want you to put this in your pocket? I want you to put this in your pocket because when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he said, forgiven. And that's the point of the cross, that you can be forgiven. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, we don't deserve to be forgiven. In fact, we all deserve the cross. And yet because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of his shed blood, I can be forgiven. And God, that's a struggle for some of us to even receive that, to even walk in that, to even acknowledge that, hey, I can live my life forgiven. But God, one indication that I've been forgiven is I can forgive others. And so, Father, I pray today you would implant on our minds the idea that through Christ, because of Easter, that as I trust you as my Lord and Savior, you have wiped away the slate. And not only have you forgiven me, but you've replaced my unrighteousness with the righteousness of Christ. So that one day I will see you, and you'll see me like you see Jesus. Because I'm forgiven. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Stand as we sing a closing song.